0: And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield, another week with our college baseball. Last week of March, right now, should have played LSU this past weekend down in Baton Rouge. I'm calling two out of three; the dogs would have wanted. Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield, here with you. And uh, Charlie, the when you look at uh, at how the season was going, and one of the things we haven't talked about is. You look at State and how we play those last two games against Texas Tech. I think that was a team that was beginning to put it together. They were beginning to pitch it much better. You knew that Westberg and Foskey and some of these guys were going to come around at the plate, but that was a team that was really beginning to put it together, and I think that's one of the things that hurt so bad about college baseball ending in 2020.
1: Well, and you felt like, too, they were starting to adjust a little bit from some of the challenges all of a sudden. You know, you come into that season thinking that you're going to be doing one thing, but then JT Ginn gets hurt, Tanner Allen gets hurt, and it looked like a team that was starting to figure out how to deal with those issues, starting to settle on what that weekend rotation was going to be, got some quality midweek pitching that you weren't sure where that was going to come from. And as you say, I think figuring it out, probably the the accurate description.
0: And we talked last week just a little bit with Buck Showalter, and we'll talk uh, further tonight in the show with uh, Ben McDonald about the same thing, about now all of a sudden so many unanswered questions when you start looking here at the end of the 2020 season and how that may affect the 2021 season. And, Charlie, so many times the media likes to pick on the old big bad NCAA because it's the NCAA is the enemy of all people. But it's actually the Division One Council, the NCAA Division One Council, the Board of Directors, who will be who will be making this call. And so who who is the board of directors in the NCAA? Thirty two members in the board of directors. You have to have one representative of each conference. The SEC only has one representative and that's it. And so you don't know. We love college baseball. There's a lot of people in the SEC that love college baseball. There's a lot of people in the Big 12 that love college baseball, but just because we want to see the right things done as far as the student-athletes being able to come back, each student-athlete being able to come back, there's a lot of people around the country that may not can afford it, and they've got a voice and a vote.
1: Yeah, they do. And, you know, even though we're still a year away from the season, the next time we will see Mississippi State play baseball – there are a lot of decisions that are going on in various different places that are already in the process of impacting that season. You identify one, and that is, will players who are juniors get that year of eligibility back? Will sophomores, will it only go to seniors? Who will it go to? There's the question of the uh, Major League Baseball. Will they have a draft or not? And then that decision is going to have trickle-down effects. If, if There's a lot of different things going on at the Major League level have a draft like normal, don't have a draft, have a draft but limit it to 10 rounds. All those things are going to push their way back down to college baseball. And then, based on that decision, whether people have eligibility or not, it will impact, again, that. Because if it's a wide-open draft, it's a normal draft, you're going to have more players inclined to go out. If Major League Baseball says, hey, we're going to give you 10 rounds and that's it, well, then all of a sudden some of those guys on the fence – Maybe who are juniors that you wouldn't expect to come back, who are signees who you would never expect to show up to begin with, may be back, and, boy, then you play the permutations. What about those guys? How many of those guys now say, boy, I really thought I was going in the draft, but now I'll go to junior college, so I'll be eligible next year? A lot of things still to be decided.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing we haven't really talked about, is Mississippi State and some other schools in the SEC and across the country have some high – projected draft picks who are signees right now. And so the question becomes, like you said, Charlie, what do they do? Do they come to school right now because you may have a different style of draft or do you go to the junior college route? You've got a couple of those different options that you have. Let's talk about the finances. And that's one of the things that really hasn't been talked about is the financial piece of this. And one of the reasons that people around the country may not be as excited about granting, and we're not talking about just baseball. You're talking about track and field. You're talking about softball. You're talking about all the spring sports of giving that extra year of eligibility. Now, the Division One Council came out early and said, "Yeah, we would like to see the possibility of the seniors coming back." So, I think you're probably going to see at least something along those lines. But you know, there have been some talks with athletic directors and college coaches in the sport of baseball. Of around the country, of what about giving everyone the scholarships? Now, here's the thing: if you allow the student athletes that are seniors to come back, which is the right thing to do, you're still looking at an athletic department hit of four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars per year just in scholarships alone. That does not that does not count the, the the money lost in 2020 with your ticket revenue. That's an additional cost with your scholarships for next year, and so it's are,
1: important to understand when we had the discussion about money that that discussion at Mississippi State is very different than that discussion at Oklahoma State, at absolutely. Wichita State, at Cal State, Fullerton, at Pepperdine. Even these schools that you think are name baseball schools, you go up to Oregon State and you start running the math, these are not programs that make a lot of money playing baseball. In fact, they probably lose most years. And so then you've got the issue there if, if we're already losing money and now you're telling me I've got to put more into it. If we polled Mississippi State fans, what will we say? There yeah. are not enough scholarships in college baseball. You should have been doing this all along. If you polled Auburn fans, Alabama, well, <laughs> okay, LSU fans, you have those teams who, who are committed to doing it, committed to doing it right and are ready to put the resources in it. Then there are a big group – who even if they want to, cannot afford
0: it. This is going to get some pushback. It it will, and it's the same reason that you're sitting on 11.7, is because 11.7 in the SEC is completely different to 11.7 in the American East Conference, and the reason is – And completely different than Vanderbilt. And (laughs) And completely different than the Pac-12. I mean, when you start talking about so many sports in the Pac-12 – and the finances of some Pac-12 schools right now, they're not getting the television money that some of the power schools are get, power five schools are getting. So it's a different answer. It's not an easy answer. I know at Mississippi State the answer is yes. We want as many scholarships as possible. We are willing to take that financial hit we have donors who care about baseball. We have people who will fill the stands. The same thing, same thing at LSU and other places in the SEC. There are a couple of places in the SEC where the ADs will come out and say, yeah, we're all for this, but in the back room they're like, eh, I don't know if we really want to take this kind of hit. So from a financial standpoint, this is it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of weeks. Here's another thing. With everything going on in the world today with the coronavirus and things of that nature, I don't know how big a in a, how big a hurry they're in right now to make a decision simply because of the optics. And so you don't really know and you probably won't have an answer to this maybe in the next 30 to 60 days.
1: Well, and the longer this drags out, look, almost without exception, there's a few, but for 95 98% of schools in this country, what they're looking for to make that budget starts in September. It is football. Yes. And the longer this goes on, the more athletic directors have to start getting worried about what's going to happen to our big money. And then it just trickles down all the way. So still a lot to be decided, but I think next year has a chance to be a very, very strange year. I think it has a chance to be a year with a lot more parity, even than we normally see across college baseball, because I think you've got a lot of schools. Think about college basketball to borrow the scenario you have your schools, the Kentuckys, the one-and-done schools, and they always seem to have trouble with that team who starts five seniors, yep. that group who's been together and played. Now think about that model as compared now to college baseball where there you have a, a real chance, to, particularly in the mid-majors, particularly in these schools where the scouts just aren't there as much, that those guys are going to get passed over, that they're going to stay in school, and all of a
0: sudden – that midweek
1: game against Wofford looks a little bit tougher.
0: Absolutely. We've got a great show tonight lined up, a tremendous show. And in the second, uh, uh, second segment of the show, um, Hardy, Michael Hardy, I know him as Michael Hardy, but Hardy, a singer-songwriter from Philadelphia, Mississippi, will join us. Uh, Mississippi State fan, grew up a big Mississippi State fan. I saw Hardy at the, uh, um, at the what bowl we play at? The Music City Bowl? Was it Music City Bowl in Nashville? Tried, I try to forget. forget that. Yeah, I saw Hardy at the Music City Bowl. Big State guy, he joins us. Ben McDonald is going to join us. We talk about trying to get all these, uh, these answers as far as college baseball. Ben will join us later in the show as well to talk about the current state of college baseball. I'd like to remind you how important it is right now to stay sequestered to stay quarantined about the, and Charlie, we are, we are a good five, six feet away from each other right now, and it's it's very important for the people of our state, of our country, and so make sure that you, you go by CDC guidelines. Well, that's one of the things that we want to make sure that you do understand how important and how very Uh, important it is over the next couple weeks to, to do your part to help us without doubt. One of the great things that we have a chance to do is talk about sports each and every week, and we get a chance to do it because of the fine folks of Farm Bureau. So check out their app. I know you don't want to do a whole lot of business right now in person, but check out the Farm Bureau app, and you can take care of all your insurance needs at the Farm Bureau app. And go with the home team or go to favorates.com, and they have all the information you need with Farm Bureau insurance. So we'll come back with more on Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. talking with country music artist and songwriter hardy philadelphia mississippi native and hardy when i think of you i think of going to the neshoba county fair and seeing a mississippi state hat a mississippi state shirt seeing you and your dad at a mississippi state football game growing up in philadelphia mississippi what does mississippi state mean to you
2: oh man it means everything mississippi is interesting um, because there's no professional team in the state and so College sports and, and, and really for, for me personally, you know, growing up, college football and college baseball was everything because Atlanta was too far. New Orleans was too far and Memphis was too far. So that none of those professional teams ever really had a presence in my life. Not to mention both of my parents went to state. And so my dad, you know, my dad beat it into my brain at an early age that that was the only school in Mississippi. That's what I gravitated to. I love sports. I played sports growing up and, and the only. You know, the only sports that I knew were, were Mississippi State sports. You know, I'm really thankful for that. I, I I didn't go to state. I moved to Nashville when I was 19. I went to Middle Tennessee State University, but I'm a state fan through and through, and, and I love it so much, and, and it's very deep rooted. I've been going to, to state sporting events since I was, you know, five years old, and I've been to something just about every year, uh, and I'm almost 30, so I love it, man.
0: Talking with country music artist Hardy, and Hardy, the th- the thing right now with college sports and college baseball in general is the the stoppage of play. And, and we really don't know how to act right now with social distancing and with the quarantine. And we see the impact on college sports and professional sports, but what's the impact been in the music world?
2: I mean, I've, I've had to cancel all of my shows indefinitely. And I mean, it, it's just like sports. There's a, a, especially professional sports where, you know, the people entertaining per se, are the ones making the money and everyone around them, their team, uh, not their athletic team, but their, you know, their publicists and their trainers and their this and their that. Everybody is out of work right now for the most part. Same thing. My band guys, my bus drivers, my agents. I mean, everybody that is on my team is it's tough, man. It's the thing where we're our, you know, the way that we make money as a touring team uh, is contingent on playing shows always. So it's really tough, man. It's just like all other, you know, industries, people that get paid to do day to day work. It's just come to a screeching halt. And it, uh, all we can do is hope and pray that this blows over and we can all get back to normal. And I, and I have full faith that it will. But it, it is, man. Everything everything has just come to a halt and we're all just kind of sitting around waiting for it to blow over. And fortunately, I'm, you know, I'm a songwriter and I can do that with my time off, which I'm very fortunate for that. But as far as the touring goes, it's it it's come to a halt and, and uh, everybody's just kind of waiting around and praying for it to end soon.
0: Uh, Hardy, we, we talk about the shows, but what about the Spotify's, and the downloads and things of that nature i mean how does that impact you know what you do as a business because i know the business has completely changed because you used to sell so many records but now it's all about individual downloads how has that part of the industry changed in the last five years
2: well it's basically it's just changed how much money is pumped into the music industry in general for songwriters songwriters don't make a life-changing amount of money anymore unless their song that they write is played on the radio it's got to be top 30 or better for you to make a what a lot of people would say a life-changing amount amount of money you know down payment on a house or a vehicle or something like that with spotify and all that the laws haven't been changed to, just to put it as blunt as possible, to pay the songwriters that same amount that they would make back in the day if they had a song that wasn't on the radio but made it on a big album uh, and, that, and the record sold, you know, two or three million copies. The songwriter would make that same radio money that they would make today if a song went number one back in the day. But now that records don't sell anymore. The only way that they can make money is through uh, the radio, because Spotify and all and all these other streaming services, the laws or whatever that are in place, they don't have the songwriters making even remotely close to a percentage um, that they would have on a record that sold a lot back in the day. It's really tough, and a lot of people are fighting for it, and we're trying to get it fixed, and we're trying to get it. We're just trying to talk to Congress. Everybody's trying to tell them that this is becoming a dying industry because there's no there's no money being pumped into it because of streaming services and just how the internet has changed the game a lot in the past
1: 20 years. Hardy, I imagine offensive coordinators sitting in their office and drawing up really cool plays and having that moment (laughs) where they don't exactly want to go share it with the head coach because they may want to keep it for themselves. You've got to have a similar kind of conflict as a songwriter now and then where you write something really good boy, I don't know if I want Blake Shelton to have this one. I might want to keep it for my own. How does that work out as to to whether it goes to somebody else or whether you take it?
2: (laughs) Well, I have a rule when I go into a room, because I don't write a lot of songs by myself. The way Nashville works is you kind of, through years of trial and error, you find your crew of 10 or 15 people that you like to rotate in and out of writing with. So I have found that crew. And when I go into a room, they know and I know that I'm there to write the best song that day and the best idea. So I always go into a write wanting to write the best song. And half the time, it's not a song that I would record as an artist you know, I have my sound and I have kind of my, you know, what I want to say as an artist. And a lot of times it's not what I would do, but I never want to steer a song in the direction. If it's going in a good direction, I don't ever want to try to turn that into something that I would do. I just want to write the best song every day. So half the time, you know, we'll finish something, you know, what we always do when we finish a great song, I will instantly say, I want to keep this for myself. Or we all just say, who could record this? And and I'm really proud of my crew of songwriters that they respect that and they respect me enough as a songwriter that when they write with me, they're not trying to get a hearty cut every time. They're not trying to write a song for me. They they respect that I'm a songwriter just as much as I am an artist. So it's tough and it was a lot tougher at the very beginning because I was at the beginning of my singing career because, you know, I really still wanted to get cut. They call them cut. When people record your song, I really wanted that, but now I'm I'm just kind of at peace with it. That, but back in the day, if I wrote a really great song, I almost wanted someone else to have it more than me. And to be honest, just because the way the process goes, you have a lot quicker chance of giving it to somebody else and it getting on the radio than keeping them for yourself for months at a time and then recording them and then waiting until your next single, you know, ends a cycle and then going to radio with maybe that good song that you know you wrote and kept for yourself for so long. But no, it's gotten a lot better. I'm just very conscious of what my sound is now. I've really got that dialed in. So it's just 50-50.
0: Talking with country music uh, artist and songwriter Hardy, native of Philadelphia, grew up a Mississippi State fan. And, and Hardy – you wrote the the number one song for Blake Shelton, God's Country. And so many times when you start talking about being a songwriter, or what I think of being a songwriter is you know, if I'm sitting on a street corner in Startville, Mississippi, and I see a yellow Corvette drive by, okay, am I going to work a yellow Corvette into my next song? In my mind, sure. in, in my mind when I listen to Blake Shelton's God's Country, I'm thinking you took a detour from Philadelphia up highway twenty one and you were driving right by the Nanawia Mound when you wrote Hey, I'm uh, gonna I'm gonna write a song named God's Country. Is that how it happened?
2: Dude, you're actually not very far off <laughs> geographically or <laughs> metaphorically at all. Um, no kidding. I I got that idea. We have a little land out at Bogachitto, which is just uh, uh I guess not the far south of Nanawaia, just a few miles.
0: Oh you're, and, uh You're I'm, making me I'm feel good. One
2: morning. Yeah, man. And I was watching the sun come up, and uh, I had, you know, I that I heard, I learned that phrase, that term from my dad. And when we would, every time we'd come to a game or we'd come to Starkville and we would cross that from Winston County into Octavhar, he would say. We're, you know, we're in God's country and that's where I learned that. So I did, man. I, I, I got that from sitting in a deer stand one day, deer hunting and, and uh, all that gold dirt road to a whole lot of nothing. That's this big, long dirt road that we have to just some land that just turns into swamp. And the most people, it is nothing, you know, but yeah, you're close, man. You were, you were right on the money pretty much.
1: <laughs> if we talk about experiences and how they can lead to ideas for songs, I'm just waiting on the first Mike Leach press conference inspired song. That you'll be coming out with.
2: I tell you what, man. I've seen a lot of his uh, a lot of his interviews, as well as I'm sure most state fans have now. And he's definitely got a lot of good. Uh, we call them one liners. He's got a lot of things to. Uh, he says a lot of interesting things. So I, I'm sure that it's coming. If it's not if it's not directly about a uh, about Mike Leach, it's going to be something that he said. I'm sure. Hopefully, if we get to play football this fall, I'm going to be paying attention to everything he says because he definitely says some some thought provoking things at times.
0: Here's what we need. Okay. Back in the mid 1980s, Gene Morgan, who pitched here, his dad wrote a song, I'm proud to be a Bulldog from good old MSU. Here's what we need you to do. Someday or some night when you've got nothing going on and you're like, you know what? I need to make up a song. I need to come up with a song about Mississippi State baseball. That's what we need. That's what we're, that's what Charlie and I are commandeering you to do, is to come up with some kind of song <laughs> about Bulldog baseball.
2: All right. I
0: think I can do that. <laughs> Hardy, we appreciate you. a little you. time, and
2: I'll, I'll figure something
0: out. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks, Hardy. And when we come back, we'll talk about our great moments in Bulldog history. We'll take a look back at that 2012 SEC Tournament Championship on our Country Pleasing Sausage Look Back segment right after this on Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Mark Gregory and Charlie Winfield. Time now for our Look Back segment, brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. Country Pleasing, without doubt, the best product you can possibly have. The best sausage in the state of Mississippi is made right here in the state of Mississippi and is consumed a great deal in the Gregory household. Country Pleasing Sausage, Country Meat Packers, Highway 49, in Florence, it's on the east side of the road. So if you're going from Jackson to Florence, it's on the left past the igloo. That's Jerry's Catfish. And then you go on down and see the fine folks. Henry Cooper and the gang, they'll get you set up with some jalapeno cheddar. Some andouille if you're cooking some red beans and rice. Almost too hot now for red beans and rice, but uh, those guys will get you all set up. All right, Charlie, time now for our look back segment brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. And we were looking back to some great times, and that was the 2012 SEC tournament. State went on a great run over in Hoover, but the thing about that uh, SEC tournament that the dogs won, we had to win three games against Kentucky in the final weekend of the regular season to get into the SEC tournament, and then you go over as the number seven seed, and then you just got completely hot at the right time.
1: Similar to 1987, where you had to sweep Alabama to even get into the tournament. You go in as the last seed. 2012, you sneak your way in. And can you believe this? 2012, Mississippi State wins. When they won the first game of that tournament, beat Arkansas 9-1, to it was the first tournament win That they had had since 2005.
0: Yeah, wow.
1: The Bulldogs won it in 2005. Jeff Butts was the MVP, by the way. And then... Here we are in 2012 Till you win another game in that
0: tournament. And so we were the seventh seed. Arkansas, you know, that was the first year they had the 10-team SEC tournament. We won 9-1. to We scored, uh, West Ray hit a home run early in that game. We took an early lead and led 3 nothing. Arkansas scored a run. It was 3-1 all the way to the ninth inning, and then we we busted everything open in the ninth inning. Bulldogs scored six times in the ninth inning. Arkansas was throwing all over the yard. Sam Frost had a big bases-loaded single. We ended up scoring 3 Three runs on that, and uh, took a nine-one lead in the game. And Brandon
1: Woodruff got his first win. Brandon Woodruff, Mississippi State pitcher,
0: absolutely. And so, State won the first day, and that really set up the the second game with the top-ranked LSU Tigers and the Bulldogs. That was a game, man. You look back and how hot it was in Hoover at that time. LSU jumped out to an early lead that day, and it almost seemed like there was there was no way. It was one of those games you're not going to come back from. Chris Stratton and Aaron Nola went head to head that day. You know, Chris gave up a couple runs early in the game and went six strong innings. Aaron Nola pitched the first two, and then they went with just a, a bunch of different guys. Bonvalon uh, gave up a couple hits, but we were able to come back and, and take a lead. Scored one run, uh, scored two runs early to take a 2 nothing lead. LSU scored two runs in the fifth inning off of Chris and I got it back tied. We scored a run in the top of the 6, took a 3-2 lead and was able to hold that 3-2 lead throughout. And it was just a game full of excitement. And I go back again, we were playing in the heat of the day. It was an early game as heat of the day and to pull off that win against LSU and you're like oh, oh man, you know, this everything's sitting pretty for us. Yeah, and then
1: after you know, so you're feeling pretty good cuz you got wins Arkansas is a top 25 team. LSU was the conference champion in the regular season. And so you're feeling pretty good. You've beaten uh, a couple of good teams and then kind of ran into it with Kentucky in the third round. You lose that one five to one. And uh, Kendall Graven, I think, started that game, went about four innings. And, you know, it was a 3-1 game in the ninth. Kentucky scored, I believe it was, two in the top of the ninth and ended up putting that one away. And honestly, at that point, I'm one of these guys that always kind of thinks that once you get to the SEC tournament, teams have a pretty good chance when they hit the losers bracket of saying we're done, we're going to go get ready for a regional. But Mississippi State didn't do that. They got another chance with LSU, and this was the game where they had to come back. Bulldogs LSU <laughs> scores three runs like in the first couple of innings yep. of that ball game, and then Mississippi State gets all their runs in the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth. And you'll know this. The man who got the sack fly <laughs> to tie it up.
0: Luis Pogliarena. You know, that was his fourth at-bat of the season. Yeah, you know, and here's the thing, though. It was one of those situations of, you know, Luis in his first three at-bats, it was almost like when the guys get in at the very end of the game in basketball, you know, they're, they're standing on the edges of their seats just cheering for the guy to get the hit because he's probably not going to get a hit. And then here's Luis Pogliarena against the top-ranked team in the country. And LSU, and you're you're batting with. He, he was in the game because he had to pinch run. The the DH was Trey Porter in that game, and Trey got on on a fielder's choice in the eighth inning. So we brought Luis in to pinch run for him, and just left him in that spot because we were running out of spots. And so then it comes up. You've got, you know, Luis at the plate, the runner at third, which was Brent Brownlee, and. I mean, you talk about a situation of just, you know, all LSU had to do was bury a breaking ball. I think they had Nick Goody in the game, that big closer they had. All he's got to do is spin a breaking ball. But he throws a fastball to Luis, and Luis hits it out to center field. We score the run. We tie the game.
1: All right, so then you come back in the 10th, and Matthew Britton, who's yep. hitting under 200 at the time, Britton goes 3-0 and on the count. So we've got Slaughter Mitch Slaughter's running down at second. You've got one out. Slaughter had the big hit though. Yeah. So and then now Britain's up, but he's hitting right. under two hundred. And Nick Rumbleo, former yep. Yankee, by the way, Rumbleo comes in. He goes, this was the first batter he faced, and he comes in, throws three straight balls, throws a curveball for a strike, fastball for a strike, and you're thinking anything right here. And he's going to get the out. And Britton puts it in play. Got it past Jacoby Jones, the second baseman. Got into right. We score and we win. And still being that guy, I'm thinking, you know what? We won three games in the tournament. I'll take it. We've done okay. It doesn't matter from here. But somehow you get that rematch with Kentucky, and you win, and then you get in that championship game.
0: And looking back then, Kentucky was the unbeaten team, and you know how the SEC tournament is, is when you get to Saturday, it gets to single elimination. Kentucky had yet to lose. We had lost the one game to Kentucky, and then we just had a big-time pitchers battle in that game. I mean, that that Saturday game, the semifinal, it was, uh, you know, Kendall came back in that – or Kendall had a tough time against Kentucky the first time out. And then in the second time, you know, State comes out and Ben Bracewell draws the start. Actually, it was Luis Poglia-Rena drew the start. Bracewell pitched two and two-thirds and was very good that day. Nick Rout came in, three and a third of work. Nick was phenomenal that day. And then Jonathan Holder got the save. But we won a two-to-one game. And you start looking at that Kentucky lineup, Austin Cousineau at the top of the order, Thomas McCarthy, who was really good, A.J. Reed, J.T. Riddle. I mean, Kentucky was – Act that entire season.
1: And and Ross Mitchell, Jonathan Holder, Caleb Reed all pitched in four of the six games in that <laughs> tournament.
0: <laughs> and then you get to the championship game, and, and you're playing a Vanderbilt team. And who, how have we gone this far, by
1: the way, talking about the 2012 SEC tournament, we haven't talked about the MVP, Adam Frazier. Adam yeah. Frazier scored the first run in that ballgame against Vanderbilt. He gets, I think he had 12 hits in, in the tournament. But so Frazier got a leadoff hit, scores at about the third inning, put the first run on the board. He has a bases-loaded walk to draw in the second run. Then you get a sacrifice fly. I think it was Brownlee who had the sacrifice fly to right field and able to
0: win that uh, tournament championship game. The final game, the championship, the starters in that game were Tyler Beatty of Vanderbilt, big-time right-handed arm, and then Brandon Woodruff. And Woodruff was the freshman – pitched three strong innings coming out of the gate. And that was a game where you knew that Brandon was going to go as long as he could possibly go, and then we were going to turn it over to Ross Mitchell. And Ross went five innings, no runs, five hits, and he just completely shut Vanderbilt down. Uh, Caleb Reed pitched two-thirds of an inning, and then Stratton came in to get the final out. Remember that? Stratton yeah. coming in at very end to get that out. Um, here's the thing, Charlie. When I look back at that SEC championship, that tournament championship, and, and you start looking at the guys in that order – I mean, you start looking at Adam Frazier at the top of the order. You had Brownlee, Porter, Hunter Renfro in center field. C.T. Bradford didn't play at the yeah, end of that year. Hurt, he yeah. was hurt at the end of the year. You had Slaughter, catcher. DeMarcus was out in left field. He West, was on the all-tournament team. Wes Ray, Sammy Frost at second and third. Daryl Norris played some third base. Britton played some as well. But, man, I tell you what, you go through those days of baseball and, and you play all those games and you definitely say – that really hurt you the next week when we lost that first game to Sanford. We turned around and beat UAB. But that long run, that that was a great run that weekend over in Hoover to win the SEC Tournament Championship. The seventh, by the way, for Mississippi State. That was the first for John Cohen. John Cohen became the first ever coach who also won an SEC Championship as a player winning that 2012 tournament.
1: And I think you could make a compelling argument that it hurt you the next week, but it helped you the next season because a whole lot of these names that we just talked about were freshmen. Yep. And you talk about Mitchell and Holder and all these guys, and you really started to see some guys who I think really benefited from that experience when 2013 came around.
0: So the Bulldogs winning the SEC Tournament Championship in 2012, and I that's to look back at Bulldog history this week, brought to you by our good friends at Country Pleasing Sausage. Back with more on Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. This time each week, we have our guest line segment brought to you by our good friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland, located right there on Highway 82, just west of Greenwood, providing catfish for some of the best restaurants in the country. And this week, we feature one of those great restaurants, Top of the River Restaurant, located on Pickwick Lake in Mickey, Tennessee. They're open for carryout all weekend this weekend, so give them a call at 731-632-3287. That's 731-632-3287. Hey, order what I order, the Riverboat Special. Tell them that Bart and Charlie sent you. That's Top of the River Restaurant on Pickwick Lake, offering great farm-raised catfish from our good friends at Heartland Catfish. And it's time to go to the Heartland Hotline. And Ben McDonald, the analyst for the SEC Network, former big league pitcher, former pitcher down at LSU. And, Ben, Charlie and I are glass-half-full kind of guys. And with all this the social distancing and all the quarantine and everything, the positive right now is it is turkey season. Yeah.
3: yeah there is you know look it's uh you know we've been talking about this and and it's terrible for everybody it's a tough time right now but there are some positives out there And and i started with you know my son being home from college he wouldn't normally be here so i'm getting to spend some time with him i know other people are getting to spend some time with some family members they don't normally so we're we're like everybody else trying to make the best out of things right now and you're right i uh i got to go turkey hunting for the first time and i don't know how long uh, you know, last week, and, and me and my boy doubled up on two birds. Oh, Philip Culpepper called in for us, man, and you talking about it, memories that last a lifetime, you know, and uh, we both got one. We've been doing a lot of fishing at the lake up there, just spending a lot of time outdoors right now, you know. So things could always be worse. I'm thankful that my family's healthy. And I hope everybody else out there is staying safe and, and staying healthy as well. And, uh, you know, we're hoping to get back to some normalcy as, as soon as possible. But in the meantime, we're just trying to make the best of
0: things. Talking with Ben McDonald. and Ben, we, we talked last week with Buck Walter, who at the time was the manager of the Yankees. And, of course, an AL East counterpart. You were in the Orioles organization in 1994, then in 1995. Now, in 94, they had the season ended. In 95, you had that late start to the season. He talked about trying to manage and get a team ready to play later what was that like for you guys? What was that like as a pitcher trying to get ready for a season later than normal?
3: You know, there was a lot of challenges about that, you know, and trying to get ready in a shorter spring training. You know, you talked about the 94 deal. You know, we, we had hoped we were going to get back to playing, which were a lot of the college boys were, you know, several weeks ago. And, and so we, everybody went home, stayed in shape during the, during the work stoppage. And eventually the whole season got canceled as well as the postseason. So that was a horrible blow for baseball. And then, you know, in 95 there were challenges of trying to get ready in spring training in a little different time and, and a little bit short in time because it took a while for everything to come together. So there were a lot of challenges with it. There were a lot of guys that got hurt too because I remember trying to ramp up and you weren't going to get as many starts in spring as you normally do. Guys didn't have quite as much time to get ready as they normally do in spring training. So it was very difficult to try to navigate You know, from a manager standpoint, from a player standpoint, to try to get ready to go.
1: Ben, there's been a lot of discussion in college baseball about what do we do with these guys who are going to miss their senior year. There's also been discussion about these players who are juniors. At Mississippi State, we think of a Jordan Westberg or a Justin Foscue, guys that everybody assumed would go in the draft in June. Now we don't even know if they're going to have one. From a college perspective, what would you like to see with eligibility And whichever way that goes, what do you think happens to these draft-eligible juniors? Well,
3: that's a good point. You know, I mean, there there are so many moving parts with everything that's going on right now. And I I don't know what the – my hope is the NCAA will give everybody eligibility back. So the ones that choose to come back can if a senior wants to come back for his senior year. Now, how do you go about doing that? Well, the NCAA would have to obviously expand roster sizes. They would have to obviously give more scholarships out maybe for one year. So there's a lot of moving parts there. My guess is the players union will never, you know, there's been some talk that that we're not going to have a draft this year. I just don't see that happening because I don't think the players union is ever going to go for that. And the reason is, if you think about it, major league baseball would love to do that. They love to group all the guys that were supposed to be in this year's draft with next year's draft and have one draft instead of having a draft this year and next year. But, that would also dilute the draft in a lot of ways. So some of these guys, like a Jordan Westberg or a Daniel Cabrera at LSU that could be a first-round pick this year, that could make a $3 million signing bonus. If you dilute this year's talent with next year's talent, then all of a sudden some of those guys that are going to be first-round picks get pushed to the second round. They get pushed to the third round. They don't make nearly as much money in the draft as we have a normal draft like we always do. So I don't think the players' union is ever going to allow – there not to be a draft this year. My guess is there's going to be a draft one way or the other, whether it's in June, July, or August. There's going to be a draft at some point. But there's so many moving parts right now. I don't know if you go from 11.7 to all of a sudden you say, okay, everybody gets 16 or 15 scholarships, uh, and and you expand the rosters by five or six or what you do. But hopefully they're going to try to get all of that taken care of in the near future. We'll have some closure to this in some ways. And hopefully the worst-case scenario for me is, I hope they at least allow the seniors to come back, the ones that want to at least allow them to come back for their senior seasons.
0: Yeah, no doubt, and Ben, the thing about it is if if you expand the rosters, nothing is going to be perfect. Nothing is going to be like you would like it because all of a sudden now you may have some freshmen that may have redshirted, and they may think that I'm two years away from being the starting shortstop, and that gets pushed back another year, and then you open up another Pandora's box with the NCAA and mulling over the thought process of the one-time transfer, you may have all kind of free agency going on in the next year.
3: Yeah, you're right. It, it opens up Pandora's box. There's no doubt about that. And that's why I just don't know what they're going to do. Because don't forget now, if we if we begin to do that, then all of a sudden the kid that's a senior in high school goes, wait a minute, I got cheated out of my senior year in high school. I want another year of high school baseball or high school sports. And do you open that Pandora's box too and start going down that road too? So There's a lot of moving parts here, guys, and I'm just glad I'm not in charge of – from a selfish standpoint, I want to see these seniors. I want everybody to get a year of eligibility back, but I just don't know if that's doable at this point.
0: Talking with Ben McDonald, and Ben, I know you spent your time at LSU in the late 1980s, and you had a lot of glory years, and that was one of the times that baseball began to get big in Baton Rouge. And then you look at Mississippi State during that time frame, 87, 88, 89 – I look at that Bulldog lineup, and you had to face Mississippi State during that uh, 87, 88, 89 seasons. When I start thinking about, you know, a, a Pete Young, a Richie Graham, a John Cohen, a Burke Masters, what was it like facing a team like that one through nine who may have been as strong as any Mississippi State team ever?
3: Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, you always knew when you played State. I mean, Ron Polk is still one of my favorite people ever, you know, and to take a step back. Mississippi State and LSU were the only two schools I ever visited on a recruiting trip. I thought hard about going to Mississippi State because I loved Ron Polk and Bob Boyd was a basketball coach at the time. And, uh, you know, and Mississippi State was doing things back in the mid-80s that LSU wasn't doing from a baseball standpoint. They were going to College World Series. And that's the whole reason why I visited Mississippi State and thought hard about going there. But at the end of the day, when you grow up 15 minutes from, from uh, LSU, it's hard to get away, you know. And then Berkman came in and he kind of turned around the LSU program and and they started going to some college World Series. I knew that was probably going to be the place for me. But that lineup at Mississippi State was as tough a lineup as I ever faced in college. You knew it was going to be a battle. And I remember going in there my sophomore year, if I'm not mistaken, and beating Mississippi State, you know, at their ballpark, I think, two to one in a complete game effort. And I remember they came to my junior year to LSU and they beat me uh, on a home run. And I can't remember who hit the home run. Now, but somebody hit a home run, I think I lost two to one, you know. And so it's a... (laughs) You know, John Cohen could hit, you know, and and, uh, Pete Young could hit. And uh, it was always a tough team. I felt like we had the the pitching depth, and they always had the offensive depth.
1: You know, Ben, you go back to the late 80s, you were one of the guys who was the face of the league as a player. You think about the stadiums then, they were fairly sparse in places. You come now here in the, you know, 2020, Bart and I talk all the time, we really think you were the – The face of the league from a broadcast perspective now and really that positive voice for the league on social media now all of a sudden though when you're going in to do that you're going into some cathedrals how gratifying is it to you to to have seen the sec grow from the time that you were a player to now that you're working as a broadcaster
3: well i appreciate you guys saying that i you know it's a It's amazing to me to see and, and look I'm just happy for the growth period of college baseball. The college baseball continues to be more popular every year. And when you talk about leading the way just like in football, the SEC baseball leads the way across the country. No doubt we've had the better teams, we got the best league, there's no doubt about that. And man, when you start walking into some of these ballparks now, it's like it's like wow, you know, I mean, it, you know, LSU built the new one what 10 or 11 years ago and all of a sudden others started to come along Alabama and what you guys have done over at Mississippi state. Look, I was there for that for that super regional last year against Stanford. And I don't know if I've ever been in a college environment. that was anywhere near that. I don't, and and that's talking about the college world series too. That was just a special, special time uh, to be there, you know, and see Jake Mangum's final at bat and and a young man that's meant so much to a program. I don't know. if, And I'm not taking anything away from, Will Clark and Palomaro and Jeff Brantley and, all, and Bobby Thigpen and Rooker and all the guys, they've been a lot. But I don't know if a kid that came along in an era at Mississippi State meant more to a program than what Jake Mangum meant in his four years at Mississippi State. But to witness that and see that that new ballpark, look, that was that was special for me. You know, you go to Arkansas, you go to South Carolina, Vanderbilt, What? Well, it's not a big ballpark. What they've done is it's extremely nice. So it continues to grow. You know, the only place really is Tennessee, and it's better than what it used to be when I went there. But, you know, it's still a little bit behind of what everybody else, but they're doing wonderful things over there too. So it's not a bad ballpark anywhere in the SEC right now.
1: Ben, I remember studying the stats as a kid when you were playing baseball, and I was always amazed at the number of innings you threw, but how at the end of the year you were still going strong. Today we get word of a – Another major leaguer needing Tommy John surgery. What was the difference in the late 80s when you were throwing a lot of pitches and just kept going, and now we're seeing more and more guys having to go under the knife?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I you know, what's weird for me is in my era, if 10 pitchers went down, it was shoulder issues. So it was a rotator cuff or a labrum or something like that when you talk about the late 80s and, and into the 90s. Now if 10 pitchers go down, it's elbow issues. It's Tommy John surgery. My son just had one five months ago, you know, and so I can't put a finger on why we're having elbow versus shoulder now. Um, I'm thankful that we are because we're getting guys back from elbow surgery at a very high rate, you know, whereas when you have label issues and rotator cuff issues like I did, it, it, it can be career ending like mine was. But, you know, I, I don't know. I know I was a basketball player and I always felt like my legs were in great shape and I always prided myself on, you know, being able to start a game in the mid-90s with a fastball and in the game after 135 pitches in the mid-90s as well. And it's because I felt like I did a lot of running. My cardio system was in great shape. The game's changed now. If you watch big league baseball and even college, there's not a whole lot of distance running anymore. It's more about explosiveness. It's more about trying to maximize and throw as hard as you can, which we never really did that. You know, our, our idea was to finish what you started. And now they're telling these guys at the collegiate level and, and at the big league level, hey, give me what you got, max effort. If you go four innings, that's fine. We'll bring somebody else in. So the game's changed uh, in a lot of ways. And I think that's one reason why we're having, you know, elbow issues is that, uh, you know, guys are starting to generate velocities at a young age now that I just don't think our our ligaments and our tendons and our bones and muscles can, can actually absorb at a 14- or 15-year-old age. And we're throwing so much now. Uh, you know, there's never any off time. And everybody says, well, you never got hurt until pro ball. But it was because I played basketball. I played baseball. I played football. I did all those things in high school and growing up. So I never really concentrated on one sport for a long time. And so my arm did have time to rest. Now, there's others out there that said, well, Ben, you threw too many innings, and that's probably led to your, your breakdown. And it probably did in some ways as a twenty year old kid from my sophomore year at L S U to the Olympic team that summer and right back to L S U my junior year, I, I logged three hundred and fifty two innings in about a sixteen month period, which we know is way too much. Now we know that. Back then we didn't know it. Heck they said, Can you pitch? You said, Dang right, I'll figure out a way to go pitch. Give me the ball, you know. And so as a competitor, you went and played back then and people say, Well, you were abused and I say, Well, I don't know if I'll call it that. I would call me a product of my time because I wasn't the only one doing it. There were Kurt Dresseldorfer over at Texas threw as many innings as I did. There were others around the league that did that as well. So times are always changing. It's evolving. It's like just as many guys or more are breaking down these days, even throwing less innings than what we threw. So I don't know what the answer is. I really can't put a finger on it. It's just different. But I'm glad it's elbow instead of shoulder because elbow, you have a chance to come back.
0: And we're talking with Ben McDonald. And, and, Ben, before we let you go, along those lines, if if you're talking to a, an 18-year-old kid or a 15-year-old kid or even a 9-year-old kid right now is just picking up kid pitch, what's your advice to these kids growing up now to try to maybe curtail some of that?
3: Well, that's a good question, and I get that a lot. And I always tell young kids, and I tell their parents more importantly, you know, this travel ball stuff, uh, we didn't have travel ball when I was a kid. You know, we I, people always say, well, how many how many games did you play a summer? And I was like, I played about 20 games a year in summertime. They're like, no way. And I was like, that's all we played. You know, we, we played 10 rec games at our local park. We played Babe Ruth baseball. If you made the all-star team, you had to go to district. If you won district, you got to go to state. If you won state, you got to go to regionals. And if you won that, you got to go to the World Series. If you didn't win, you were, your season was done. Nowadays, these kids, if mom and dad's got a little bit of money, and junior and them go zero and ten during the regular season. They can still go to the World Series if they want to, if they can, you know, if they want to put their entry fee in and do that. But I always tell the parents is listen. If you think your kid is showing exceptional stuff, he's got a really good arm. Take care of him. He shouldn't be throwing a lot of innings at a young age because what happens is the best player normally plays shortstop. So he plays shortstop for three games, and he comes in, he pitches eighty pitches during the during the weekend too, and he goes back and he catches and he plays shortstop again. There's a lot of pitches and a lot of throws when you do that. And if you've got a kid you think is going to excel one day and he does have a good arm, put him in a situation where a coach actually understands it and he gets it and he's not going to abuse your kid at an early age. Let him throw his, you know, 40 or, and I always tell people this if your kid's 12 years old, 60 pitches on a weekend once he's in shape is plenty for me. I don't need to see him throw any more than that. But when we get caught up in winning, these meaningless travel ball tournaments on the weekend, we, up, we start hurting our kids and we heard them in high school and there's high school coaches out there. God love them. There are a lot of good ones, but there are some bad ones out there too, that are going to throw junior a hundred pitches, 110 pitches, 120 pitches his junior year, his senior year in high school just to try to win a district ball game. And it's not that important. I know it seems like it at the time. Now, if you're a kid that's not going to play at the next level, I get it. Go throw 180 pitches, Go try to win a state championship. I get it. But somebody's got to take the bull by the horns and say, you know what, my kid's going to play at Mississippi State. He's going to play at LSU. He's already committed as a 10th grader. I'm going to make sure he's taken care of. And so get yourself in a situation where your kid's not the only horse on the team, where you got a bunch of horses, and that way you don't ride one one young man to death. You know, But it's a fine line, and we got to pay attention to our youth out there, and, and, and that's what's going to keep these surgeries down is we got to pay attention.
0: Ben, we'll turn you loose. Quickly, box call, pot call, trumpet call. What do you use?
3: Man, I, I kind of got into the box call. I got a little slate call, too. I'm not good enough with the mouth call yet, but I, I'm just learning this turkey hunting thing, man. I'm telling you, I, <laughs> I, I've never – that was really the first legal turkey I've ever killed. I hope I can say that. I mean, I, you know, I, I've killed a couple I'm out of season every now and then a long time ago, but we actually called this one up, and I didn't do the call, and I was just kind of sitting there waiting. But that was. I'll tell you what. I can get used to doing that now. I ain't going to lie
0: to you. All right, Ben. Appreciate you, man. Thanks as always. Y'all
3: too. Take care of yourself.
0: So that'll do it for another week of Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. Thanks to our good friends down at Farm Bureau. Go to favrates.com. Go to your local Farm Bureau agency. Remind yourself, go online. Use the app, that Farm Bureau app. You can do all your business, your insurance business, anything you need on the Farm Bureau app. So until next week, I'm Bart Gregory for Charlie Winfield saying so long. You've been listening to Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau.